It is good to be in the house of the Lord today, and I'm excited. We're continuing a series today that we started last week titled Turning Tables, and we are looking at tables from a number of different angles, particularly how they're presented in the Gospels, because Jesus did a lot of ministry around tables. And as he did, he often sort of turned the tables on the religious establishment of the day and invited people and associated with people and did things around those tables that were uncommon. And he sort of turned the tables as he did so. And so we're looking at that. Last week we started with a message titled Flipping Tables when he goes into the, to the temple area and he flips the tables of the money changers and those that were exploiting people who were trying to get to God, people who were coming to God and, and there were those that were exploiting that desire and profiting uh, from it. And uh, the message or the bottom line last week was don't sit at tables, Jesus would have flipped. And there were a number of different ways that we could apply that to our context, Uh, not just exploiting people overtly, but making it difficult for people to get to God, making it difficult for those that maybe are far from God, but have a desire that's welling up within them. How can we make it easy? How can we pave the way for them? So today we're going to just change a few letters and go from flipping tables to skipping tables. Uh, Today's message is is titled Skipping Tables, and we're going to look particularly at the call of Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. He's also known as Levi sometimes. This story pops up in three of the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's in Mark 2 and Luke 5, but i got to think that Matthew's probably the expert on his own call to ministry. So we're going to look at Matthew's presentation of this and all three of these presentations and a couple other stories that sort of echo this story that we find in the gospels they all make it really really clear that all are invited to the kingdom that there's no carve out there's no no group that we're really going after and we really want them the most and these people it's just fine if they don't make it all are invited all are welcome And that there was nobody that Jesus placed in any kind of a hierarchy. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. If you're in the sanctuary here, you can grab one of the blue hardcover Bibles, the seat in front of you, and turn to page 1509. If you're joining online, we've got this on the screen. But I really encourage you to get out a Bible and open it up and read along and maybe make some notes. I've mentioned this every now and then because for a long time I didn't think you could write in any book, especially the Bible. But you can write in your Bible. You can write things that God says to you in your Bible and so you remember them the next time you read that. You can even write in pen if you want to. Some people, that's that's a little bold. They only want to use a pencil. But here's what Matthew 9, 9 through 13 says. As Jesus went on from there, he just healed a paralytic. He's doing ministry in the area of Capernaum on the north side of the Sea of Galilee up in northern Galilee. As he goes on from there, he sees a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so as we think about that, I'm going to give you the bottom line early, because it it comes right out of 
this interchange that Jesus has. And the bottom line today is don't skip tables Jesus would have sat at. Don't skip tables that Jesus would have sat at. And I know I I ended a sentence with a preposition again, right? Two weeks in a row and you call yourself an English major. Well, don't sit at tables at which Jesus, don't skip tables at which Jesus would have sat. Just doesn't carry the same punch. So we got to do it every now and then. Don't skip tables Jesus would have sat at. And there were some groups of people that were mentioned here. First, with Matthew in chapter 9, he introduces himself to the world as a tax collector, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And that's significant because there were sinners and then there were tax collectors. In the Jewish hierarchy of this time, the tax collectors were the lowest of the low. Like you could be an ordinary run-of-the-mill sinner and people might still associate with you, but if you were a tax collector, these were the untouchables. And part of the reason for this, this idea, this reality that they were not just looked down on, they were completely despised and rejected and outcast and hated, is that they were traitors to their own people. They had been recruited by the Roman government because they would know the ins and outs and they would know a lot of people in the area and so they were recruited by the Roman government to work for Rome and to collect taxes for Rome and Rome basically said as long as your region, as long as your area is collecting enough taxes that as what we've lined out, you can collect as much more as you'd like. Not only that, when people get behind on their taxes, if you want to loan them the money, you can charge whatever interest rate you want to charge. And you talk about exploitation. These tax collectors were collecting extra taxes, and then when people got behind on their taxes, they would lend them the money, but at these really high interest rates. And so people would get farther and farther and farther behind, and farther and farther and farther into debt. And the tax collectors would own property and things that they never should have because of this whole arrangement. So they were despised, they were outcasts. Not only that, They had frequent dealings with Roman government officials and they were in their homes and they were in their places of government uh, and so they were unclean as a result because they had come into the house of a pagan, an, an unclean person. So they couldn't come to synagogue and they couldn't come to these places even if they had been invited. They couldn't come as an unclean person into a clean person's home. So there were all kinds of social things that just had pushed them completely to the margin. They were ritually unclean. They were traitors to their own people. They were exploiting them. And that's who Matthew, the gospel writer Matthew, was before he met Jesus. And yet Jesus sees him sitting at that tax collector booth. And we have to We have to expect that there was probably some interaction before, or at least Matthew had seen a few of the miracles or had heard him teach at the Sermon on the Mount or had had some contact with him, but it's possible that it was just simply the fact that when Jesus looks you in the eyes and says, follow me, you follow him, you go. And so Matthew leaves that behind. He leaves that tax collector booth behind. He leaves that old way of life behind. He leaves the wealth that is associated with it behind. And he follows Jesus. And he becomes a disciple. And not just a disciple, a gospel writer. Billions of people have read this man's story and this man's writings. Because he followed Jesus when Jesus said, follow me. And so it's interesting, in verse 10 and 11 then, he throws a party for Jesus and he invites a bunch of his old friends. What if we did this as converts? 
Wouldn't this be cool? It's clear that this, this feast takes place in Matthew's house and Luke's account makes it clear that it is a feast in fact. And I think this is so interesting and I love this quote from Warren Wiersbe as I was reading his commentary on this passage. He says, the Christian life is a feast, not a funeral. You see, we have an enemy, the devil, who tries to convince us that we give up way more than we get in this Christian life and that it's a lifelong funeral and a death to everything fun to become a believer. And yet I know some believers, and I try to be one, that have a whole lot of fun following Jesus, a whole lot of fun serving people in his name, a whole lot of fun doing things with family and friends and sort of rejecting the social narrative that says, well, once you give your life to Jesus, it might as well be over. That was never, that was never the thought. That was never the thought process. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, we serve a God who commanded his people to party on a regular basis. Like, read the Old Testament laws. And every so often, take a week off and have a big feast and have a big festival and travel. Go for a, you know, a weekender in Jerusalem. Go and be with people that you haven't seen for a while. And there will be singing and there will be dancing and there will be feasting. God said, thou shalt party. And I find it interesting that Matthew here throws a party. And Jesus is the guest of honor. And he invites all of his old friends. What if we did this? Wouldn't this be great? What if we threw a party and we got all of our friends together and we told them, look, I've decided to follow Jesus. I'm not going to do it perfectly at first. You see, too often I think we think, well, once I get my act cleaned up a little bit, then I'll start being public with my faith. Then I'll let people know. But I don't, you know, I don't want to bring, you know, I don't want to bring judgment or I don't want to invite their, their judgment or their opinions. And so we get in the habit of sort of living like, our life with Christ is a lifelong funeral, and that's not the case, and it should not be the case. And I also think it's interesting that at this party that he throws, there are other tax collectors and sinners, and they have community with each other, and this is often the case that those that are rejected by society find community among themselves. So they're not going to their families, they're not going to synagogue, they're not in the social circles of Capernaum here in this setting, but they know each other, and they have fellowship together and they have community together because we were created in the image of God. And God has lived his entire existence from eternity past to eternity future in unbroken communion in the Trinity. Like we were created for community. We were created in the image of a God who is in constant community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so we will find community one way or another. And we see this today in gangs and we see it in slums and we see it in all kinds of organized crime rings and anything else. Whether they're good associations or bad associations, people collect and find community together because we were created for community. And so what's really cool about Matthew is he invites Jesus and the disciples into his community. He takes Jesus to his community. And they're welcomed and they're accepted by this community. I find that interesting as well. Sometimes it's those on the outside that find community among themselves that are far more open and welcoming and accepting than those that are in the center of the social structures. And so they welcome Jesus even though they've been rejected by others and that's where the Pharisees take issue, right? The Pharisees come, they see this in verse 11. We're told that they asked his disciples why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They, doesn't ask, they don't ask Jesus. 
Ask his followers. And I think there's a couple of potential reasons that that's the case. I'm not quite sure. Matthew doesn't tell us why. But I think one reason might have been that he was, they were trying to make the disciples ashamed of Jesus. Like, that's who you're following? This guy who eats with sinners? Who eats with tax collectors? And they're trying to make the disciples ashamed of Jesus and ashamed to follow Jesus. And, and if you do this, if you throw a party and invite Jesus, there will be some either from the religious establishment or from your old friends that might say, why are you following that guy? And it might get a little uncomfortable. But I think another reason that they do this is that they're afraid. They don't want to ask Jesus because, as we'll see throughout the Gospels, most of their interactions with Jesus don't go that well. (laughs) Most of the time when they do ask Jesus a question, he lays the smack down on them pretty good and calls out their nonsense and calls out their prejudices and calls out those things. So they ask the disciples, but Jesus overhears it. Divine omniscience has to have some perks, right? He overhears it and he says, really, what we would expect him to say in verse 12 and 13. It's not the sin, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You see, they were filled with fear, and we know this from last week. They were filled with fear when he flipped the tables over, and they wanted to kill him because they were afraid, because people were listening to him, and not them. People were listening to Jesus, and not the Pharisees. You see, before Jesus gets on the scene, everybody's going to the Pharisees and asking them what they think, and asking them, how do we follow the law, and what does the law say about this? And they taught in the synagogues, and Jesus is displacing them. In fact, the ESV study Bible had this footnote that says, Jesus' offer of salvation to sinners threatens the Pharisees' way of life. Yet, it is at the heart of the gospel he came announcing. You see, Jesus is throwing open the doors and the gates of heaven that the Pharisees had invested quite a bit in managing how wide that gate really was and how, how easy it was to get to Jesus. And they could make it harder and they could emphasize things that, were, that most people weren't even aware of. And yet it makes me wonder before we kind of move on to what Jesus says, is he doing anything that threatens our way of life? Is he doing anything in this world that threatens your way of life? Are there things that are fairly clear throughout Scripture that are expected of his followers that he says, do this? And you will be blessed, and yet it threatens our way of life. Or maybe lifestyle is a better way of wording that. Is there anything that Jesus is doing in this world that he asks us and invites us to be a part of that threatens our lifestyle or our way of life? If you're not tithing, tithing threatens your lifestyle. Tithing is enough, 10% is enough, that you feel it. And yet the New Testament makes it clear that we should be doing that and being generous on top of it. That sacrifice is the level. Joyful, willing sacrifice is the level of giving that's expected for the followers of Jesus Christ. That we want to be making regular investments into the kingdom of God. That's going to impact your lifestyle. Serving within the church and outside the church. And what we do with our time is impacted by what God is doing in this world. And his invitation to join him as, as those that are reconciling people to God that we would be ministers of reconciliation, that we would be following Jesus, that we would be giving of our time and our energy and our resources. It impacts our lifestyle. So when we realize where that's taking place, what's our response? And does that response need to change? Because sometimes we, we get the most pushback when our lifestyle is threatened. 
just came to mind, but I, I remember reading once that John Wesley, when he started as a minister in the Anglican church, his salary was 48 pounds a year, which is not a lot, but I think in mid-1800s, it was more, right? 48 pounds a year. Well, then he starts writing books, and his book royalties got to be quite substantial. But he decided, you know what? I could live just fine on 48 pounds a year. So whatever comes in on top of that, I'm just going to give it all away. And at one time, it was over 1,500 pounds a year, 30 times what he had been making were coming in on book royalties and he never cashed the check. He basically just gave it all away, gave it all away, gave it all away. He didn't want his standard of living to grow with his income. He just wanted to maintain a high standard of giving. And so that's one example here. But Jesus, Jesus makes this clear in verses 12 and 13, who he is after. And it's not a matter of good and bad. That, that's how we break this down. Jesus sees it as a matter of healthy and sick. He says, I have come. You're looking at sinners. You're looking at good and bad. I came not to call the sick. I'm sorry, not to call the healthy, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus seems to understand and recognize Something that we sometimes don't. You see, we, we like categories of good and bad. Especially once we become a little better. Once we can put ourselves in the good category, it's a lot easier to look at the people that aren't as good as us as bad. But Jesus doesn't play that game. And I was listening to a person I had never heard of before. His name was Andy Gullihorn. He's a Nashville musician. He was being interviewed about his journey and about his testimony. And he said, I'm not a bad person getting good. I'm a sick person getting well. Ah, man, that's good. I'm not a bad person getting good either. I'm a sick person getting well. I was sick with sin and selfishness, and then I met Jesus. I was sick with sin and selfishness just like Matthew, and then I met Jesus, and he said, follow me, and I've started to follow him, and I haven't gotten better. I've gotten well. The parts of me, the things that I didn't understand, the things where I was unhealthy in my relationship with God and my relationships with others are being healed by Jesus and I'm no longer doing some things that I used to do. And it's easy to just look at them and say they were bad things, but no, I was sick. I didn't understand some things. And it's helpful sometimes for us to not see and differentiate between good and bad, but between healthy and sick. And there are people that don't know what we know. And God hasn't revealed to us or to them what he's revealed to us. And so once he moves beyond healthy and sick, he goes to righteous and sinners. And he's saying basically self-righteous. I have not come to call the self-righteous, the people that think they've already got God in a corner. I've come to call sinners. I've come to call the people that the righteous have shunned and pushed away. That's what Jesus is saying. And Paul was pretty blunt in Romans chapter 3. That there are none righteous. Not one. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All. And that all have been saved through grace in Jesus Christ. And so there's very level ground at the foot of the cross. Like I said, there's not a group that Jesus is really after. And those top, you know, that's plan A. If we can get those guys, we're going to be good. No, it's everybody. Everybody is welcome. In fact, he spent more time, I believe, with sinners and tax collectors than he did with the religious elite. 
That's where he was. That's who he was hanging out with. That's who he was spending time with. And the common people. And that's why our bottom line is so important that we not skip tables that Jesus would have sat at. Because when we skip a table that Jesus would have sat at, when we refuse to sit at tables Jesus would have sat at, we're refusing to sit with Jesus because he's there with those people, whoever those people are to you. And we have all kinds of different ways of divvying this up. But not only do we miss out on time with Jesus because he's there, we miss out on the opportunity to bring him to people and bring people to him. And that's our job. That's our goal as his followers. That's what we've been called to do as ministers of reconciliation, as co-laborers in his kingdom, is to bring him to people and bring people to him. And so what are the ways that we do this? I think there are several, and I've highlighted a few. I'm going to try to move through them fairly quickly. If yours isn't on the list, that doesn't mean you're off the hook. If the Holy Spirit whispers something else in your ear, write it down. And these aren't in any necessarily in any order, but political affiliation is one that I see often. You know, some social commentators have made the statement that politics is the new religion, or politics is the new idolatry. And whether you're on the right or you're on the left, whether you're conservative or you're liberal, it's very common today for people who are professing Christians to know much, much more about their party's political platform than they know about Christian doctrine, than they know about the Word of God and what it says. And it's very, very common as as media tends to try to push us to the extremes and divide everybody into the far right or the far left. That if you're on the right, you want nothing to do with the people on the left. Or if you're on the left, you want nothing to do with the people on the right. And those people are those people to you. Socioeconomic status is another way that we do this. The haves and the have-nots, those that, that in, often in their estimation have worked hard and built something and you know, accomplished something versus those who haven't. And yet there's so much more to the story when you hear the story. John Wesley quote came across my radar this week. It's funny how often that happens. He said in one of his sermons titled On Visiting the Sick, one reason why the rich in general have so little sympathy for the poor is because they so seldom visit them. And man, this was true in my life. Andy Stanley has said that the farther you are from a problem, the easier the solution looks, right? So when you're a long way from the problem, the solution looks really simple. Get a job, go to work, save some money. Quit doing that, whatever it is that causes you to be homeless. And then I got on the board of a rescue mission, and I started serving at a rescue mission on a regular basis, and I started teaching classes, and I started hearing stories, and I got closer to the problem, and I found out just how complex and complicated it was, and how many people had been abused, and how many people had PTSD, and how many people had mental illness, and how many people had been dealt really, really rotten hands in life, generational poverty. This is not a simple solution. It's not a simple problem. And the closer you get to most problems, the more you see them for what they really are. But the farther we stay from them, the easier it is to just say it's a simple solution. And there's a whole host of others, race, gender, ethnicity, religion, whether or not they've been in prison or are in prison now. There's all kinds of ways that we kind of split people up into the us and them categories, and yet there is just us 
God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the whole world, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In fact, Paul says something in Galatians 3. He says, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. None of those things that we do to divide people up into little groups matter before God. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. The foot of the cross is the leveling factor. And so we must stop looking down on groups of people for any reason. Jesus does not, he did not, and we must not. Because none of those factors has any basis on the availability of a relationship with Jesus Christ. None of those factors. And truth be told, it's not enough just to not skip the tables. We should be actively seeking out those tables. We should be reaching people for Christ. Giving them a place to belong and helping them grow in their faith. We should be seeking out these tables. Jesus tells those Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We should be sitting down with people who are far from God on a regular basis. Jesus did. That's clear throughout the Gospels. There's a story in Luke 15 where Jesus gives these three powerful, powerful parables. It all gets started in verse 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That was the context. That was the setup for Jesus to tell the parable of the lost sheep where one wanders off and he leaves the 99 behind to go and get the one that had wandered off, the outcast, the one that was separated from the group. Then he tells the parable of the coins, the lost coin. Now it's one out of 10, higher perceived value, higher comparative value. And lastly, he tells the parable of the lost son. One out of two. But always, God is leaving behind the one that has what they need to go and get the ones that don't. And he sends us to do the same. There's a powerful, powerful quote on this subject. It's one of my favorite on this topic. And it says, God is in the slums, in the cardboard boxes where the poor play house. God is in the silence of a mother who has infected her child with a virus that will end both their lives. God is in the cries heard under the rubble of war. God is in the debris of wasted opportunity in lives, and God is with us when we are with them. It's easy to say God must have abandoned that place. No, God is right there, and he's right there with us when we're right there with them. Now, you would think it was a great theologian that had said this, maybe a pastor, maybe a Bible teacher. You know who said that quote? Bono. Yeah, you too, Bono. The the lead singer, one of the most famous rock bands in all of history, one of the highest selling bands in all of history, used his platform that that came as a result of U2's success globally to get involved in all kinds of humanitarian efforts. And he recognized that God is in those places that we would call God forsaken. And he's with us when we go to those places. So he tells us, Jesus tells us, go and learn. First, go where they are, whoever they are, to you. Don't just write a check. Go. It's easy to write a check. It's messy to go. And when you go, sit down. Look them in the eye. 
hear their story. Tell them your story. Invite them to your table. We have a number of ways right here in the community that you can be involved in this. Seniors on the Go ministry has gotten very involved in the Union Gospel Mission, and there are ways to participate in that, and there are ways to go and to be present there. We host a service six times a year. We lead the the worship, and we bring the teaching, and you can go, and you can be a part of that. St. Francis House is another place that we serve on a regular basis. We got one coming up real soon. You can see the links in the digital bulletin where you can go and sign up. And one of the cool things, we get enough people to sign up at St. Francis House, we can have two shifts so that half the people can serve the first meal and the other half can go and sit and eat at a table with ex-cons and formerly homeless people. And you hear their story and you find out what their life has been like. And maybe you have an opportunity to share your story. And then... When the, the ladies are done, the guys are kind of come through, then we can switch out and, and so we can serve a meal to the guys and the people that just served the ladies can sit down and can have a conversation around a table. Or there's lunches served. Like There's all kinds of ways and you don't have to just do what Linwood does. You can find other ministries, the table and Bishop Dudley House. They're all over town. There are all kinds of places that we can be involved So we go and we learn. We learn. We learn what it means when Jesus says, I desire mercy or compassion or pity, not just sacrifice. Sacrifice is part of it. But being present and sitting down at a table and being a vehicle of God's mercy to flow through your life into the life of another person is part of the calling. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word and we thank you that you were willing to go, to leave heaven behind and to come to this earth. And you didn't just come for the best and the brightest, Lord, you came for everyone. You came for a wretch like me. You came for wretches like all of us. And so help us, Lord, to link arms with you and to go to the places you went and to do the things that you did. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.